0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello, hello, and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a food critic sharing his writing journey from rock stars to Michelin stars. He's the owner and chief of content at San Diego Magazine, and your favorite judge on Triple G, it's Troy Johnson. Troy, welcome to the podcast. Most of our listeners obviously know you from Guy's Grocery Games, other various Food Network shows that we're going to get into. But I remember you from your time on Out of Left Field and oh! Fox Rocks in San Diego. What do you remember about your early TV days back then?
1: Not, not much. I've gone to a lot of counseling in order to block that. <laughs> no, oh God, those are my greatest times actually just getting started on TV. Here's what I remember. I love those early days. I mean, I was working at Alternative Weekly, which is just run on like fever dreams, caffeine, grit, hustle, and paperclips. And we were, <laughs> it was just a bunch of writers. And we were, we, were, we were all in love with Lester Bangs. And we were all in love with, you know, David Foster Wallace and Joan Didion. And we we're all going to be these great literary documenters of, our, of a city, right? And uh-huh. I was a music guy. You know, I, I got a poetry degree. A I, poetry degree? I, I was the least employable college graduate in 600 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, my dad, I was going to be a dentist.
2: Oh, you, and my dad, poetry degree.
1: And, yeah. My dad came <laughs> downstairs one day. He's a dentist. And he said, you know, please, I mean, keep you in school as long as you want, as long as you never ever become a dentist because you'll wallow in misery. Oh, I, I said, okay, well, that's nice, but it's on three years in. I, he said, well, what do you want to, like, what am I going to do with this career or a college career when I don't know what I have, have any clue what I want to do? I'm going to Chico State, the Harvard of the West. And, <laughs> and I, so, so it's already lined up for success for me, Chico. Right. And I said, the only thing I could do is conquer my biggest fear, right? So I got a speech communications degree because I was terrified, absolutely terrified of speaking in public. Absolutely, And so I just wanted to conquer that fear. And I had panic attacks for two and a half years in, in that curriculum. Literally every time I went up to the podium, I swear, I would I make mean, tunnel vision, sweats. I, I would speak in gibberish. <laughs> I, I could not speak. And then one day... It just I guess my body's fighter fight or flight response was like, this idiot is not fl- a
2: flight, <laughs> you know?
1: So he, he, let's just stay here and deal with this. And I, from that day on, I was able to speak in public. Anyways, I, then I got my poetry degree and <laughs> it's like a speech, speaking and poetry degree. Never thought I'd use them. I ended up using them on TV and writing. You know, And that's kind of what actually ended up helping my career. So I'm writing for this Alternative Weekly in San Diego and we love it, but I'm getting 300 CDs across my desk a month. And back then there was no internet radio. That's how old I am. There's no (laughs) MP3s, no Spotify, no Apple, no anything. And the mainstream radio could only play 1% of those um, songs. So those, you know, the the artists, there's this magical, 80% of those CDs were terrible. But there's this magical 80 to 99%. And I convinced the new, new studio to let me come in, drop a black curtain down. And I would come in looking like the you know, CBGB or the Casbah here in San Diego, underground rock <laughs> dive, you know, and everybody had perfect teeth and perfect hair. and I would have imperfect everything else, you know, and I would just have these punk bands on. and what, and, and then we'd have, you know, some mainstream pop bands. We had Brandi Carlisle when she was like, I don't know, seven years old, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, we had Maroon 5's first ever pe- television performance was on our little show, Fox Rocks. Wow. Which, by the way, I did not name. You, <laughs> you cannot rhyme with your rock show. And But the marketing people were like, you're young and this is your first job on TV. Why don't you just um, shut up and sit in the corner? And we're going to name that. <laughs> I said, you know what? We're That's, giving e- you a show. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do. You know, so yeah, so then we, that was great. So for six years, we covered underground, you know, bands. Had TV on the radio on there. We had peaches. Jason Mraz came in. There was just all these like underground bands that were coming through San Diego, and they would end up playing on our show. And then internet radio came on, and it was, they, everybody could discover everything. And I switched out of left field, which was a Padres pregame show.
2: Yeah, the pre pregame show.
1: That, <laughs> how? Much introduction <laughs> do you need to a baseball game? Right. Not that much, you know. You
2: really need to break down everything that possibly could happen without knowing what's going to happen, you know.
1: Yeah, uh, Jamie, that sh- that show, okay. So they hired me because they were like, "You're going to be the John Stewart of baseball," you know, because I studied humor writing. That's what I did. I fell in love with David Sedaris. I fell in love with jo- Joan and All of the Klosterman and all these writers, and I, I would I write kind of funny, you know, and then I would translate that onto TV. You know, and they were like, you, you're John Stewart. No one's John Stewart. All right. No <laughs> one. I'm not as funny as John Stewart. I'm as smart as Jon Stewart. I'm not as, you know, I'm, I'm not as good of a, a film producer. Anyways, so they thought this pregame show was going to be this me interviewing celebrities having these great chats. And we were going to discover the world through humor and all these famous people were going to come through San Diego. And then we realized that we were the San Diego Padres <laughs> and not
0: the L.A. Dodgers.
2: And a struggling San Diego Padres for part of that time as well
0: really struggling
2: <laughs> you remember it yes i do for Those, four years that, i covered them yes <laughs> yeah there's a lot of crying you know there was a lot
1: of it was like you know i i would imagine that beer sales are pretty good you know because that was the best thing on the field you know so but it, literally for that that was actually one of the best parts of my career because you know they looked at me at an hour-long show they built me this studio in the middle of this beautiful uh, historic building and they at the whole time they built it for an hour and they're like stretch Just stretch.
2: Just stretch. (laughs) Just stretch for an hour.
1: Talk. 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 And I looked at this camera and learned how to you know, extemporaneously talk. And now I you can't shut me up.
2: As you see. (laughs) Well, as we just found out. I mean, that was the first question. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's it. (laughs) Look at you. What would the scared Troy freshman at Chico State think of you now?
1: (laughs) He would be like, Oh my, We I guess we got through the sweats and this all worked out, you know, <laughs> I mean, it really, no one thought it was going to work. I mean, I, you know, I was a nerd early on. I read and I read and I read and I read and I read, you know, and I got... And I would write, I would write and write. I remember writing poems for my family when I was like, you know, seven or eight years old, you know, and I would get accused of plagiarism every, every year in, in school. they were like, no kid writes like this. I couldn't do science. I couldn't do math. I couldn't, I could barely keep my life in line, but I could write, you know, and that eventually was, you know, I said, I'm going to give it a shot. And I was working as a bartender, I was the world's worst bartender, you know, I mean, <laughs> abs- I got fired so quickly from two jobs. You know, I have no spatial awareness whatsoever. If anybody seen me on Food Network, they can tell I'm a little bit jumbled. You know, I have, I just go. I kind of run at life like I'm, it's the bunny hill and it's my first day ever skiing. You know, that's kind of how <laughs> I've always, always acted. So I was the worst bartender. Eventually made it as a writer. You know, what I mean, yeah. I made it as a writer in San Diego.
2: Well, you definitely did. Yeah, you. that's where you that's where you made your name for yourself, for sure. And you grew up in San Diego as well. So from going, you know, from just, you know, a kid in San Diego to now the owner and content chief of San Diego ma- magazine, how does it feel to kind of have this full circle moment in your life right in the city that raised
1: you? You know, this is one of the most impactful, meaningful things that I've ever done. Everybody I know who had a creative brain or an idea in San Diego for decades left. Every single good band I ever knew, every single good artist, every designer, anything left because they were like, I'm going to make it in LA. I'm going to make it in New York. I'm going to make it in Portland. I'm going to make it in Austin. I'm going to make it anywhere but here. And there's a few of us said, well, what happens if everybody who has an idea or a touch of creativity or, you know, an ambition leaves San Diego? This town is just going to be flip-flops and tourists and have zero cultural acumen whatsoever. And so I'm like, this town is going to be terrible. You know, (laughs) so I decided to stay. And there's a few of us that decided to stay and see if we could build something culture-wise. And the the whole owning San Diego magazine, so funny, people are like, why would you buy a magazine in 2023? (laughs) did you also invest in the pony express like, <laughs> during the pandemic? This is, it was, that had changed everybody's life. That really scary first part of the pandemic, you know, the, I woke up and I had, I've been covering food and say, for, for 15 years. I've been telling helping tell the stories of mom and pops, you know, you're know, just launching the dream and, you know, work, working their butts off in the kitchen. And, you know, I would try to get a little bit deeper than the average, like, Oh, this thing is open and you should try this. You know, it's like, okay, where'd you come from? What struggles to be seen? You know, that sort of thing. And, you know, during When the bad part of the pandemic started, I woke up to 500 emails from mom and pops saying, help. Every single email said the same thing, help. And I was, because I, I was the food writer in San Diego, you know, and I've been telling their stories and I had, a, I had an outlet. They were like, I need to sell a little bit of food. All my sales are going through. Nobody knew that the PPP was coming. Nobody knew that relief was on, would, would eventually come, you know, so I told my wife, I said, I'm, I, you know, it's, what I do is not fast enough. I'd have to go down there, write a story, get an editor, put it online, get a photo, edit it, you know, and then publish it. So we're just going to open up our Instagram. I'm going to open up my Instagram and I'm going to have these people live on every single day, you know, and we're going to tell their stories and we're going to cry and we're going to, you know, listen to it all. And then, you know, we're going to drive people to we're show the food and drive people to, to, you know, buy as much as they could, you know, that day to help these people get through this. And so, Every single day for a year, we did this. And it was one of the most impactful things I've ever done because I've traveled now for, I've been on Food Network for 12 years, you know, and I've done uh, another show on other channels, you know. So we, I've been traveling half the time and living in San Diego half the time. And I would get off every night and be like, And I would tell my wife this story about this, you know, maybe sometimes, and it's not always first generation, but, you know, sometimes it was first generation Americans who just put ever their entire life savings, they barely made it over to the United States, put their entire life savings into this, and now everything was falling apart around them. And I... And then they would call me the next day or email me the next day and say, you know, we sold out that day. Like, you got us through another day. And I'm not applying for sainthood here. People did way <laughs> more than I did.
2: But it's all important, you know? Like, every every little one of those stories is part of somebody else's story, you know? It does make, as you saw firsthand, it made a difference, right?
1: It did. I, that, and honestly, I could, that was this person down the street. That was someone I could go see. And I, I, I'm like, this is what I want to do. And my wife said, my wife is the best. And Claire is amazing. She was just like, she's all, I got a crazy age. And Claire's full of crazy ideas. She's like, (laughs) he's like, I've never seen you so happy at telling stories, you know, of like your own home. And, you know, people know you here. Like, why don't we buy San Diego magazine? And let's turn it into a modern media company. She was one of the fastest rising young executives at NBC and Comcast. She was She's brilliant. They offered her way, an ungodly amount of money to stay where that she was. And she said, no, let's do this together. Let's do this dream. So we took over San Diego Magazine when she was nine and a half months pregnant. We we walked into a a lawyer's office in the middle of the desert and it would smell like carpet and dead people.
2: And (laughs) it was,
1: and she had, we had a rescue terrier on on her big belly, you know, and we signed the papers to do this. we had our masks on and everything else. And for the last two, then, so we take it over And there's a mid-sized media company coming out of a global pandemic, working half remote. There's a ghost town of an office that (laughs) looks like you walked onto a ghost ship and there's three people there. And they're like, hi, my name's Chris. Are you my leader? You know, like, (laughs) I mean, so it was chaos, absolute chaos, you know, and then we had a baby the week later. And, you know, she became a single mom upstairs. I became a single CEO downstairs and we just teamed it together. And now a year and a half later, you know, we've been able to grow the company and tell the stories of San Diego. I mean, not just food, food and drink and restaurants mm-hmm. and everything else, but the entire culture. And it's working. I mean, in a t- day and age when local media is kind of, you know, is struggling massively. You know, we've been able to grow it a little bit and just to be able to do it in your hometown and contribute something to where you live. I mean, it's, it's awesome.
2: Yeah. And and as you kind of alluded to, obviously, publishing is a tough business, especially right now. So what have you done to kind of bring it into the modern world, but also just kind of keep that spirit that it's had for the last 75 years?
1: You know, we invested in writers. I mean, writing is everything. Storytelling is a lost art. You know, I mean, if you if you can the poetry I tell every single writer that comes on my door, read poetry every single morning. It sounds so antiquated. It sounds like you should have a little tea sandwich, you know, and you know, some kind of black diary that you need to weep into. You don't. You know, it just helps you unlock that power of metaphor, you know, and that's what I've always i uh been able to do on food network is you know i sit there and i think and i see a dish i'm like this is so rich what else is rich you know and i it end up on something like it's it's like eating morgan freeman's voice you know like <laughs> that like, morgan freeman has a very rich voice you know that sort of thing and i so we we teach i mean we we hired people that had that power you know, that had that voice that had that authenticity here. And you're like, Oh, I want, to, I know this person, the way they're writing feels like they're whispering it in my ear. That sounds creepy. Maybe they're talking, <laughs> maybe you're sharing a glass of wine on the, on the couch, whatever. And we took what I had on Food Network, you know, what I've learned to do on Food Network. And it's been amazing for me. That's taught me how to, you know, tell stories in a video in and in a, in a visual medium that is both interesting, informative, and not too long, you know? And so, and we started doing videos. So I mean, right now, you know, I'm doing a series of videos. Basically, it's like a three minute segment that, you know, Guy or whomever would do on a, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing it, but I'm using my, you know, writing. Sometimes it's humor, sometimes it's adjacent to humor, and it's sometimes it fails mildly. But I'm using <laughs> what I have, you know, to tell those stories. And it's been phenomenal. You know, like I just went into a, and we, we put that on our Instagram, and our Instagram blows it out. And like, I did a little video on a barbecue joint just in this you know, offshoot part of town, mom and pop, you know, they were kind of, they're great. Phenomenal chefs, you know, but they were struggling. It's a tiny little place. I did a video of it. we put it out on our Instagram and I got a call the next morning that, you know, they sold like $30,000 worth of like catering. There was a line. I got a call from the local guy who owns the punk club, the Casbah. And he was like, you, I have a bone to pick with you. My favorite place has a line around the corner. (laughs) And and it doesn't always happen like that, you know, Mm -hmm.
0: but that's
1: those the moments that you're like, awesome. I was able to use what Food Network has taught me over 10, 12, 12 years and impact somebody's life. And, you know, and, and be authentic about it. I'm not going out there saying everything is amazing. Like you still have some of that curation, you know, of like, no, this is just awesome, you know, and you need another story, you know. And yeah, so it's been that's how we're modernizing it, doing a lot of video, a lot of events like we're, you know, but um, uh, well, I don't want to get into everything. You have, you, what? How are you?
2: I'm great. I'm great. I'm I'm having a great time. I'm like, you're doing my job for me. (laughs) No, this is great. I mean, you know, as somebody that, you know, obviously lived in San Diego and and fell in love with the food scene back then, what do you love about the food scene right there? What what is it? What makes it so special, especially right now?
1: I love it because it's no longer terrible. Mm. It was, it, there was a long, dry, it was a T.S. Elliott wasteland sort of food scene for a long time. It was like, do you want to go to chain A or chain B? Do you want to go, <laughs> go to get supersize this or supersize that? We're going to get crazy. We're going to do both. You know, and it really, for I started writing about food here for in 2007. And it wasn't until 2019 that I really saw like, oh my God, this has really arrived. And the reason why, there's so many reasons why San Diego's, it becomes such a thrilling food scene that Michelin is coming to. We just got the first three-star Michelin. LA doesn't have a three-star, so wow. we have one now. There's more small farms per capita in San Diego County than any um, county in the United States. So, our produce is amazing. Daniel Baloud's right-hand man, Travis Swikert, who now opened up a restaurant in San Diego called Cali, he said he used to get boxes of produce in in Barbelud and it would all say San Diego, California. He's from County, San Diego. Wow. So he said, "Why don't I go home?" Cuz if you talk to any chef, the I mean, you, if you can't make, I mean, you can make do good food. A great chef can make great food out of mediocre ingredients. But if you start with an amazing ingredient, then it's only going to get better. And our produce, Chino Farms and JR Organics, all these little farms are making, you taste it. You're like, I never knew this is what an apple or squash <laughs> really tasted like. You know, it it's in a completely different species. So that's primarily. And then we're so adjacent to Baja, Mexico the mexican influence is so great our chefs have learned to cook with fire and ash and you know acidity high acidity because they use a lot of lime in mexican and northern baja cooking so that influence has been phenomenal every single chef here has a wood farmer they know how to like cook over live fire that's the biggest thing that's happening here too you know and i think that because it didn't have such a crowded scene you could get you can make a name. So chefs started coming here, you know, instead of jumping in this mosh pit of cuisine, which was a lot of the other big cities, you know, they could actually do what they wanted to do with a little bit of breathing room and make a little bit of repute, you know? So I think the Mexican influence, the seafood, I mean, right here on the ocean, every Saturday, there's a dock that down called Tuna Harbor Dockside Market. And it is all the local fishermen, dumping off all of their catch as they just came in from the water. It is a line of, you, the Asian culture in San Diego appreciates seafood more than anybody, and they know the seafood the best. So there's a line of like our Asian community and chefs, I mean, and, and everybody. But I mean, it's are just lined up for, you know, like, you know, a couple hundred people deep waiting for that great seafood. And that goes directly into our, our restaurants. I mean- so you get that seafood, you get the, the Mexican influence, you get the farms, you know. And then also, I think that we, we don't over things here. San Diego is really casual, really real, you know. We take the, the kind of formality, which scares people off for good food, to be quite honest with you. You know, I mean, billionaires want to, like, eat, chicken and right put on their jeans, <laughs> you know, and I think San Diego kind of gets that and it's a little bit more approachable, even though the chef at the kitchen worked for a lot of 11 Madison park, maybe. Sure, you know? So I, I think there's that casualization. Yeah. Kind of I think that
2: kind of goes along with, you know, just the, you know, the ethos of the city in general, like it's just a very, you know, laid back, you know, people like to go to the beach and surf and it's, but you know, like you said, like enjoy good quality ingredients as well. And I think that that, is very much being, you know, reflected in the in the current food scene there. Growing up, what were your like? What are your food memories from childhood?
1: Uh, Mom had a microwave, <laughs> um, and she had a car. Okay. You know, those were her two favorite cooking utensils, you know, the microwave and the car. My mom always says that I learned how to cook because of self-defense.
2: Out of necessity, survival. That was it.
1: (laughs) And, and, you know, we, I mean, she was a single mom. She was working, you know, I mean, and and it was just like, I would, I would really, I grew up, you know, making my own mac and cheese and eating top ramen. As soon as it came in, that those packages, my life was saved. You know, I mean, it was just you know, anything we could get at Costco, you know, you know, that whole front row, though. My mom, you know, because she had a little bit of that single mom guilt, she had to work late at night. She shouldn't have the guilt, but she did. So she would buy all the blow pops and everything else. We had an obscene amount of disgusting food in our house. It was the place where every kid wanted to come. I and mean, you just, they'd all come over, eat all the sugar. And then about 4 p.m. after school, they'd just all be laying around, like, frothing so from crash. their mouth. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Sugar crash.
1: So, yeah, I mean, we grew up in Mexican food. Though. Like the first like real like, like dose of, you know, I mean, any kind of food that wasn't like sandwiches. And I mean, obviously ramen is Mr. Momofuku Ando, but, you know, it's Japanese. But our Mexican food, when I first tasted, you know, three roll tacos of guacamole at El Roberto's, that was my gateway drug.
2: Yeah. You know. <laughs> that was,
1: you know, but that was when I, those first three-year-old tacos kind of changed my mind. I'm like, ooh, what else is ooh, out there? what like, is
2: this? <laughs> yes. You know, so
1: it, 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 I mean, the Mexican food scene here was just always – I mean, whatever. Oh, you It's always – yeah. Yeah.
2: It's so funny because I grew up in Montana. And so when I moved to San Diego at, you know, age 22 or whatever, I think, you know, I finally had Mexican food for the first time. Even though, you know, obviously, we have our places back home that I still love. And, you know, but then I realized when I moved to San Diego, I'm like, oh – that wasn't really, like, authentic Mexican food. Like, this is, you know, and I still say that, like, you know, just go to any taco shop, any burrito shop in San Diego, and you are yeah. going to get, like, the best burrito of your life, you know? Well, and I
1: think, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, the, one of the biggest things, that I, I can tell you culturally, because I've studied this for a long time here, is that the, one of the biggest things that happened, you know, of, of what... It got really started the cross current between U.S. chefs and Mexican chefs. There was a lot of violence in Tijuana in 2006 and 2007. And it got so, so to the point that my Mexican American friends who were chefs here would not go, would not go down to Mexico. They moved their families out of Mexico, you know, and what happened during that time, it's such a dark time for the Tijuana chefs and the Baja chefs that were, you know, cooking down at Baja Guadalupe, which is a wine region, just about 90 miles south of the border. You know, it was such a dark time for them that they would come on over. They would come to the San Diego you know, a lot just to like say, hey, we're still here and to kind of get out of what was a really dark time, you know, and that influence that kind of like, you know, they were emissaries for a culture that was struggling, you know, and they would, they taught our chefs how to really do a lot of like the Mexican cooking. And that was out of a very dark time came a very positive thing, you know, and I think that was really a big shifting point for San Diego Mexican food, because what I would say about San Diego Mexican food, I grew up with the three bags, the kind of Mexican food that you put in the sh- riding shotgun and, it, you know, it has those <laughs> grease stains coming through. The bag disintegrates, you know, by the time you get Crunchy
2: home. Crunchy tacos. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> but, you know, that the problem with that, though, is because we all grew up on that kind of like, you know, inexpensive Mexican food. I'm not going to say cheap because inexpensive because it's just still beautiful when it's, you know, it doesn't cost a lot. But the problem was that we didn't let it, our Mexican chefs who would go trade with some of the best chefs in the world, you know, would not let them elevate that cuisine. Elevate is a bad word. People don't like to use that word anymore, you know, but but it it would have been fantastic Baja and Mexican chefs and they, no one would pay $25 for the meal because they're like, I'm used to getting a burrito for $3. You know, finally this year, we just got our first Michelin star and it's a Mexican restaurant up in Oceanside. That's awesome. So it's, yeah, so it's a really... Good blossoming of the Mexican food now. It's not just what we grew up on. You know, it's not just flip-flop food. <laughs>
2: it's not just flip-flop food. Yeah. You, I mean, your your writing career, I think, is, is wildly fascinating, just like all of the different, you know, things that you have covered over the years. But you also wrote a book about your childhood called Family Outing. Can you share the premise behind that book and how those experiences that you share have really shaped who you are today and who we see on TV?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was. You know, I grew up with a gay mom in the you know, 80s when I don't think anybody was allowed to be gay at that point in time or didn't feel like it. Nobody was talking about it. I didn't know anybody right. like me. We were the weird family, you know, and my mom came out when I was you know, eight, 10 years old. And, you know, and kids back then were so, I mean, the words on the playground were, were almost exclusively, especially among boys, you know, aimed at, you know, the F word. And, you know, it was everything. And I, you know, every time I heard it, you know, nobody knew this, but I mean, it was my mom. You know, I was thinking about my mom and I was thinking about what she was going through, you know, and so I really should have titled that thing. It, the subtitle really was kind of like the undoing of, a, of an American bigot, because the whole story was about, you know, really overcoming my own bigotry towards my mom. Really? You know, I mean, I was, I we didn't let her partner 15 years in the house. I, mean, I remember, you know, and she was a single mom. She didn't want to lose me to my dad. There's a whole family dynamic that I wrote about. I'm like, this is so sad, you know, because... America wasn't ready to let people be who they were, you know, you know, so we continually just were, we're the other kids. And the interesting thing is, and I'm not outing here because it's it's um, public. We've talked about it in the past, but my wife had the same experience. You know, she has two moms and she grew up with it. And she was the other kid, you know, and nobody really talked about it in her neighborhood as well. So I wrote this whole, you know, the whole Like, kind of psychosis of a straight kid growing up with a gay parent in the 80s when it was not okay, at least what I was hearing, that nobody, society wasn't telling me this was normal, wasn't okay, and everything else. I was like, it was fascinating, the psychology of it, you know, just praying you're not gay, you know, because I'd seen what my mom went through, you know, it's like, oh my God, is there a gene, you know, everything else. So, and then, you know, just kind of analyzing the, you know, how do you become, you know, A, wrestle with your own bigotry towards somebody you love, you know, and become a better person and kind of assimilate that into your life. You know, and I wrote it through humor. I, I wrote a humor book about it, you know, because I love David Sedaris and everything else. And I was going to tell this really edgy, raw, unfiltered take on what it was like, you know, coming of age, you know, and go through puberty and everything else that, you know, when you had, you know, and other, you know, an alternative lifestyle in your house. And so it was, you know, it's interesting because. I look back at it now. And the way that I wrote it was that I wasn't going to give myself the benefit of of maturity. Like I wanted to write it a way a 13-year-old little twerp like myself (laughs) wrote it. Felt, you know, so say the things that I was saying behind her back or, you know, it's so weird, it's gross, you know, everything else. And so I wrote it like that. If you don't know that context, sometimes if you read that book, you're like, wow, he's really mean. What a jerk, (laughs) what a monster, you know, but- you know, so it was really like a humorous take on, you know, a coming of age and really a coming of age with me in the same way that America was kind of coming yeah. of age. And becoming homosexuality was not declassified as a mental illness until 1973 by the American Psychiatric Association. So I was born the year that they were like, okay, finally, your mom's not crazy. Mm. You know, wow. I was really, so I explored all of that and, and it just, and then it would really kind of, you know, devolved into like juvenile delinquency and everything else. You know, I was kind of a trouble kid, you know, because I felt, and I, I'm not going to blame it on that, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to blame it on. But at the time
2: it. it felt that way, I'm sure, you know, for
1: sure. it felt like that was the reason why any kind of path that I was on may have taken a detour semi what close to juvenile detention, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it's was I wrote this thing and I wrote fifty first 50 pages of it you know, in a, ca- a cafe in San Diego. And I sent it off to an agent and she signed me and it got edited by the guy who edited Naked Lunch by William Burroughs. His name is Richard Seaver. He was a f- legendary, you know, publisher in, in New York. And it was really, it was a really cool thing, but man, it was raw. It was a raw nerve that I just wrote about. And that's the best writing is right.
2: What, what is your family? How do they feel about it? What do they
1: think? I talked to my mom the entire way, you know, I obviously would never do that without her permission. You know, I said, mom, mom, I don't want to write a book about growing up with a gay parent. And then at the time when it didn't feel like anybody was allowed to, be. I mean, it felt like I was alone, you know, and she was like, all right, absolutely. I'm like, I'm going to make it funny. I'm going to tell all the jokes. I'm going to, you know, I mean, no, not all the jokes in terms of like derogatory jokes, but just humor all through it. And she was like, absolutely. I let her read every chapter. She loved it. Her friends loved it. You know, some people, when they read it, they were like, you know, this is disparaging to, you know, LGBTQ. And I was like, I didn't mean that. I I meant it to be like, you know, that I finally one day woke up in college and realized that I was, you know, I had a blind spot that I, you know, I was, I, I was kind of a lesser version of what I wanted to be because I still had some anger towards my mom being gay. And so once overcoming that, was one of the coolest things ever in my life. You know, it was one of those like great humaning moments. And my mom, I love it. She still loves it. You know what I mean? It's really interesting to talk about sexuality and parents, but I mean, that's, (laughs) that's the weirdest thing about growing up with a gay parent back then. Like, you know, you don't like to think about your parents' sexuality. No one does. Let's not ever talk about this. Let's just pretend the stork, you know, (laughs) and that, but I could not, you know, no one would let me forget, you know? So it's an interesting thing to grow up with and everybody's talking about your parents' sexuality.
0: You
1: know, yeah. so, so I just, you know, I was proud of the work and it, you know, we got pretty well receptive. I think we, you know, in readings throughout San Diego, a lot of uh, lesbian moms come up to me and just talk to me about the experience. It was really, it was cool. I, I, for that moment, when I put out that book, you know, I was no longer other and I was a voice for a lot of, I, a lot of kids reach out and were like, thank you for writing that. Like I, wow. no one had written a book from our perspective, you know, before. So it was, it was good.
2: I mean, it kind of in that vein, like what, what is how do you feel about writing just for your own personal? I mean, obviously, you do it, you know, as a career, as a profession, and have for a very long time, but what does it do for your, you know, personal like outlook on things?
1: I mean, writing is a great therapy. I mean, I, you realize that writing was actually starting to, t- was, Originally taught in universities because GIs were coming home from a horrific experience in World War II, and they decided that you know we needed to help these you know service members like deal with some trauma and get it out and talk about it you know and it's and it's not all trauma we're not all bleeding onto the page but it does help you explore your thoughts it's a it is a meditation you know every day you get sit there with your thoughts and you just transcribe what you know, how they evolve when you sit by yourself in silence. And that's what writing is. It is a meditation. It is, it's my, my, my goop experience. It's my eat, love, pray <laughs> morning. You know, and it's just fun. I love the English language so much. I'm such a nerd. I read the dictionary. I would star <laughs> the words that I knew, you know, I just, but you come up with some new way of saying something. That's why I loved Twitter for so long was that it was like some of the best writers who were to like CVS, you know, like these are people who didn't do this for a living. You know, they had an honest, you know, job that was completely different from writing and they wrote better than I ever could. You know, and I was like, God, that's great. You know, and it was just kind of a forum of writing. So, you know, I, for me, it's just that creative outlet. It kind of gets your brain going too. And, yeah. You, know, you can, I mean, anytime you can language as I tell my daughter is, you know, it's, that's Every, every new way you learn to write something out or express something, your world gets infinitely bigger. You have a narrow, narrow mind. And every time you just tweak that, you have one single experience. And if you write about it for a page, you're gonna think of 20 different ways of thinking about it. And it just kind of it makes you end up a, a more well-rounded, expansive human being.
2: Up next, Troy talks about evolving into a food writer and later reveals his favorite challenge on Guy's Grocery Games, so stick around. How did you evolve into a food writer? Because obviously, you know, you're you're writing about music, you're, you know, doing stuff for billboard and Rolling Stone and things like this. Like, how did it evolve into writing about food and now obviously judging food on Food Network?
1: So when the American economy collapsed, I lost both those TV shows that we talked about earlier. It was overnight. Within one week, every advertiser pulled out of every show, at least on a local level. So I lost the the music show ended, that Padre's pregame show ended, and I needed to take a job. And I walked into a very fancy magazine that had, you know, lovely... Then people who look like they just needed a bite of food on the cover. <laughs> and it, was, it wasn't it was my vibe. I wrote about punk rock. I wrote about art. I wrote about, you know, and I had a really pretentious view of myself back then. I'm like, I write about art, whatever. You just need a job, kid. Take it. And I they said, you're going to have to write about food. And I was like, I'm like, and really the first words in my mind were not publishable on this podcast, but I was, you know, I, I said, you know, I was <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I, I got to, I don't want to write about food because I thought food writing was pretentious. I thought it was, you know, people in soft sweaters sitting around an Aspen timeshare fire feature talking about microgreens. You know, I, I thought that it was, <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was namby pamby. I didn't think it was, it had substance, you know? So I, of course, you know, I told her exactly what I, on my mind and I said, look, I'll take the job. Absolutely, I want to write about food.
2: <laughs> You're like, <"Yes, laughs> I need some money. <laughs>
1: yes, I need, I, need, I need some of the money. You've got money, I need it, so thank you. <laughs> and so we had, at that point, there was a the guy that wrote for the New York Times who was our food reviewer. And the group publisher or the group editor of food, because it was a nationwide network of magazines, had won a James Beard Award for uh, writing about food. His name is Brad Johnson. And he wouldn't let me write about food for three years. He said, study it, learn it do it. You know, so I, this is no, no joke. I bought every cookbook and encyclopedia in the world. And I read, and I can still name, they named the Jamaican national dish, salt fish in a key. I can, <laughs> I made thousands and thousands and thousands of flashcards. It looked like a scene from beautiful mind in my little apartment in, wow. in San Diego. It was, I mean, I'm not kidding. Piles, piles, like feet tall of of these flashcards and i studied them over and over and over and over and i learned i read harold mcgee's science of cooking uh, from back forward to cover i learned everything in the world that i could about food for two years i went into kitchens i talked to chefs i started cooking first dish I ever cooked i swear i swear to you this is true i said i'm going to get into cooking this is when i i'm going to be a food writer i gotta start cooking and i i said oh, i'm going to work with what i have in my uh, pantry and i found a frozen tilapia some spaghetti and it didn't have any sauce so I found a can of V8 and I put that V8 into a saucepan I heard reducing things was cool that was a way to do stuff you know, so i reduced this V8 <laughs> can and put it over pasta with frozen tilapia. It was wow. The, I mean, it set cooking back 6,000 years, <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, but I mean, really the, the way that that translates, I guess, to your original question was that, I mean, I studied it. I mean, yeah. insane, insanely for three years, I gave myself a culinary education, you know, and I went into chefs and I talked and went into kitchens, and talked to them and I ate all the time everywhere. I mean, you know there's people always ask, you know, me like, you're not a chef, you know, I'm a home cook. I cook a lot. I I can cook, you know, but I never worked in a restaurant kitchen. I'm not a chef. And Mm -hmm. I I don't deserve that act that, that work, you know, but like, how do you, you know, how do you judge this food? I'm like, well, to be quite honest with you, like I, there is a validity to having eaten salmon 7,000 ways,
2: you know, there is, is.
1: it's my job to eat out at restaurants. And I literally for the last 15 years, I've eaten out of restaurants between anywhere between two restaurants and 20 a week. Wow. You know, so, I mean, there's sometimes I would do five a day, you know. So there's, I've experienced more because while chefs are in there cooking in the restaurant and really focusing on their own menu, I had to focus on everybody's menu and experience as much as possible, studying why that worked. So that's a different perspective that I brought to it. And then really the way that it translated was poetry. I mean, it was, it, I it wrote back about to poetry. It does. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wrote about bone marrow the same way I wrote about punk rock. They're both said like aesthetic, you know, like emotional experiences.
2: And now look at you, you've judged over a hundred episodes of guys, grocery games. I'm curious, do you bring that food critic mentality to your judging or do you take a different approach when you're on that show?
1: Now, it's the same. I, I, I've studied food for so long now that I know how it should be constructed. I know how every dish has been, should have been executed in, in 10, 15 different ways. You know, I know when things go wrong. You know, so it's the same thing. You know, it's the same thing as me sitting at table four, you know, in a restaurant, you know, I've, having booked under a different name, it's a different world now, but I used to do that, book under a different name and go to a restaurant and do these reviews, you know, and I would be scribbling on my lap. I'd be the weird guy scribbling on my lap and making notes. It's the same way. I keep that 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 on. But you also are, there's, you're also storytelling when you're on guys' grocery games. You're also mm-hmm. taking into consideration there's a human being with a heart and a dream on the other side of that dish, you know? So you're staring trying to- Staring at you while you're- <laughs> Staring at you. That was the hardest thing. You know, you look at this person, you're like- uh, you know, and, and the thing about grocery games is that we we have fun, we we mess around. It's humor is is a, a, a core thing of what we do. You know, so if we're not laughing, like I think that's why it's worked so long. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, Guy's a very talented human being, but the you know, there's it's worked so long because he's kept and all of us have kept a very humorous approach on the set. I've had to reach over or like say to the the chefs many many times. I'm like, you guys. You're going to see us laughing a lot. It is nothing. I promise you, we're not laughing at, I know you're going through a lot. (laughs) We're not laughing at you. We are just keeping it light. You know, this should be fun. You know, like that's it. You've had to explain it to us. I'm about ready to tell you why you're going home, you know? And so anyways, you pick apart the condition mentally. I know the way it should be seared. I know that you got to take the little foot off that that scalp. I know this. right now. Anyways, there's, I definitely keep that half on.
2: What is your favorite challenge on the show?
1: Oh, cart swap without it, without not even close. I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's like you have a plan in life. You're going to be a dentist, and all of a sudden, somebody's like, "No nope, poetry." Like, ah, <laughs> ah,
2: figure it out. What a terrible decision, you know.
1: So, you know, it's it really is like you know, it's that that Talking Heads song about this is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful car. This is not my family. This is not my home. You know, it's like walking into somebody else's life. Like, what plan did you have here? (laughs) You know? So, and I love watching their faces because they look over and some people are excellent shoppers. Shopping is the hardest thing on that. Yeah. I mean, you have way too many choices. You know, it's like Brad Pitt's dating life. You know, it's just, (laughs) you're like, oh my gosh. Like, what? I I I mean, it's so it, it's easier on shows where you only have a tiny pantry, right? Or yeah. if you select ingredients, you're like, okay, now just cook these. You know, you have to run through what is the equivalent of one of the nicest and biggest grocery stores that you've ever seen in your life and make some quality decisions. <laughs> you know, it's that, that's the t- absolutely toughest thing. So some people are great shoppers, and some people aren't. You'll see people come back, and you're like, oh. That, oh, that, that's nowhere that's near what they wanted. I guarantee it, <laughs> you know? And you'll see some people come back with the entire store, you know? And so then when those people have to swap that person who just went out into the world and hunted and gathered and has like every, you know, Noah's ark of protein and, and he's got, you know, the entire farmer's market and you see the person over there with like eggs and potatoes, you know, like that's it. <laughs> you know, and they have to shop, you know, swap cars. It's like, <gasps>
2: Do you guys know that that's coming before it happens?
1: We do know. Okay. We, we're we privy. They'll, they'll surprise us for sure. You know, they'll, you know, they like to see, to mess with us as well. You know, but they mostly just mess with the guests. We know what the game will be and we're kind of ex- experiencing
2: it. <laughs> You're or, like, ooh, <laughs> like can't wait. <laughs> but there is,
1: I'd say like it's kind of half and half though. Because there's a lot of, there are a lot of games that we're really surprised by too. Or a lot of twists and turns like oh, that's not nice.
2: (laughs) It does seem very... Maniacal at, at, at some times. <laughs> oh, it's mustache
1: twirling, for sure. Yeah.
2: Um, you are also just on an episode of Beachside Brawl with one of your friends, Antonia LaFaso, who we just had on the podcast again. What was that whole experience like for you?
1: Antonia is such, you know, it's funny about Antonia. She has zero filter whatsoever. But what comes out of her mouth is, has a lot of heart, a lot of care. And, you know, care in the right way is she'll tell you straight up when she doesn't agree with something you're doing. And she'll She'll completely take you down, and, but not in a mean way. You know what I mean? Like she'll do it in a way that you're like, Eh, you're kinda right. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know, so I've always appreciated just somebody who speaks their mind and that's Antonia, but you know, you know, there's a good heart behind it and she's you know, so the, experiencing the show with her, it's so funny because she wore um, a skirt. She's like, Have you ever seen me in a skirt? I'm like, Nope, nope, no. no, no. <laughs> it's like black jeans. You black know? Black jeans,
2: black jacket, and a bun. Yep, that's Humbers. it.
1: Yeah, she's like she's like definitely the leader out of the Grease one of the Grease gangs, you know, in the movie.
2: Yes, for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I love working with her anytime, you know, and, and being on that set though, what people may not see is is that it was
2: Breeze, breeze. Really cold. That's what she said. It was like oh, not warm. It was oh, not beach
1: weather. <laughs> like, like cryogenically, like I think I'm younger now, you know, because I think it, it's, just, it's just like froze a couple of my DNA strands. Like I'm going to live for a long, long time. Um, but it was, you know, because it, 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 it's beachy. And and obviously the sun is out and we want to portray the beach. And you're like. Mm-hmm.
2: Think warm mm-hmm. thoughts. <laughs> a tiny
1: bit of acting in that one.
2: Yep. <laughs> she is also one of the very many talented chefs involved in the inaugural Del Mar Food and Wine Festival. And as one of the founders and hosts of this brand new festival, can you kind of just take us through the journey of crafting and coordinating an event like this in your hometown?
1: You know, it's it's crazy. This is it's Claire's and mine. My wife and I dream for San Diego. You know, the reason why we did this was to lift up a city and lift up its food culture. And, you know, we had talked with a few people that had done big things in San Diego. And there's this epic piece of grass right by the ocean. You know, it's where Alex Morgan practices every day. You know, she's the captain of the women's professional soccer team in San Diego, the Wave FC. And it's this. no one's been, ever been able to throw a party on it. Or like a festival, because there are some neighbors nearby that would prefer not to have <laughs> um, noises, you know. Sure. And finally, we partnered with the owners of it. And they, th- we pitched every, everybody's head around. Now. If we could get the best restaurants onto this grass and do a two-day cookout, you know, and the San Diego chefs and the best it's moms and pops, and we have two Michelin star restaurants that are going to be there. It's going to be 80 restaurants over two days. You know, it was it's, this is the manifestation of all the coverage I've done over the years. You know, I've been telling these people stories and that's what we're going to do all summer is tell these people stories and then want to bring them to this place and then it evolved. Now it's six days. You know, Rob Machado who's a professional surfer. He's kind of an icon in San Diego. He's going to do a beach day. Everybody's going to go down to the beach with him. And then they're going to go up to Brian Malarkey's restaurant, walk up to Brian Malarkey's restaurant and have a brunch with Rob. There's, you know, Alex Morgan's host. uh, And the the Wave of Sea is hosting the opening party. Drew Brees, NFL quarterback, is going to be doing a pickleball tournament. The actors from Breaking Bad are cooking with Bo McMillan. Uh, what? Kelly Cor- <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I got, I roped Bo into it and, and I'm like, "Bo, come on. Yeah. He's like, Oh yeah, I'll do anything. Come on. Like, We're all friends. That was the greatest. I, well, I'll finish that thought because as you can see, my thoughts tend to go in nine different directions. <laughs> the, this dinner. So Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston, they did their own mezcal. Hombres. Oh, right. And they are going to do a mezcal cooking dinner with two of the best chefs from Baja, Mexico, which is, we're basically one super region. City and Baja are one city and one culture. You know, they're coming up to do it. the Lodge story pines. This woman named Kelly Crossman is an amazing chef. You know, she's been working her butt off for 13 years and she's, they're all going to do a dinner and Bo cooking with their mezcal. Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston are coming down for the dinner. We are trying to get them to stay for the entire thing. We'll see. I guess they have (laughs) some, they probably have a couple acting gigs. They might be busy,
2: you know? Yeah. (laughs)
1: So this festival turned into this big, wild thing. I mean, it is my effort to use. I mean, I, I remember sitting on, on set and I talked to Antonia. I talked to Artie was going to come, but she got a, a TV gig and I'm like, look, don't pass up a TV gig <laughs> for You know, we have Eric Greenspan, we have Aaron May, you know, we have Bo, a bunch of these. And I were just saying, like, would you guys show up? You know, I want to lift up San Diego's food scene. I want to put them on a national stage. I, I, it's ready. The city's ready. You know, if I throw this big event, would you show up? And every single one of them, we've been working together. We're, we're brothers and sisters. and You know, like we're camp kids together. It's like going to camp every time we film, you know? And, and we—they every single one of them was like, you just tell me when and where, I'll be there. You know, and so it's, it's really, I mean, A, they kind of like, yeah, guy gave me a little of chills and a little of tear because that's, that's really awesome. what we wanted to do was lift this city's culture up. And you could tell as many stories in print. You could tell them on video. But... Until you actually experience them, you know, that's the real, like, ex- that's what people remember. That's what you are going to talk about. You're not going to talk about a story. You're going to talk about something where you you were sitting there talking to that chef, hearing their story for a second, or getting a taste of their food and seeing them sweat and how much they work and the manifestation on the plate, you know, and really kind of get to experience a culture. So now it's turned into this whole, you know, Southern California culture a party over two days. I mean, six days. Wow! You know, some of the country's best wineries are coming out. It's, I mean, it's way bigger. It's so funny because we take redoing a modern, a media company to make it modern with a child, with a brand new <laughs> child, one of the freshies. Yeah, I would not recommend it if you ever consider <laughs> if you ever consider doing two those two things concurrently. I would break both your legs and move to Mexico, change
2: your name,
1: you know, and do whatever. It took so much to do. I mean, 16 hour days, just, I mean, so much work. You know, I didn't even, I wasn't even on my social media, which, you know, I, I'd really been, you know, cur- developing over there. Yes, you have to as a creative, you know, I stopped doing it for a year because I was rebuilding this company and I was helping young writers, you know, and developing their voice and everything else. Now we're at that point. We finally got to that point about a month and a half ago where it's growing and people are noticing. They're like, oh my God, you did it. You turn this media company around. I'm like, huh. So then my wife's like, now, why don't we throw the biggest thing we've ever done? <laughs> you know?
2: I was like, oh, just oh when my- you're getting your footing, like, let's
1: just- throw something new in there. <laughs> I, I was thinking Mexico. I was thinking of Margarita. I was going to go surfing somewhere. But she, but I mean, it was not, it was both of our ideas and all of our ideas to do it. But it's been such a big undertaking. I will tell you this: when it's over, because it goes from September sixth to the eleventh. When it's over, September twelfth, I am just going to lower myself into a margarita and I am going to <laughs> slowly bob just about. Take
2: a bath. <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to take a, a bath. cold margarita bath.
1: <laughs> I know, and I told my wife, I'm like, no more big projects for just a couple weeks, man. Like, just like that's not. Yeah.
2: Well, it sounds absolutely incredible and definitely worth booking a, a trip for. And I don't know, I'll have to, I have to. I, you're, you're, I'm tempted out. now. I'm like, I haven't been to San Diego in so long. Come Maybe on, I just come need to go. Back. Come
1: back. <laughs> This is it. I'm trying to hook people back,
2: too, Yeah, you know? I know. I see what you're doing. You're, you're very talented at it. <laughs> I'm,
1: all, I'm all, hello, San Diego's
2: cool. Let's all
1: come create something.
2: Uh, no, it sounds incredible. I cannot wait to see how it all unfolds and I'm sure grows even bigger and better next year. We are sadly running very short on time. So I'm going to finish things off with a little yeah. rapid fire round. And then we have one okay. final question for you. Quick snack that you love.
1: Oh, am I cooking it or am I or am I either I just way.
2: It? What's it substitute? Okay.
1: I can I say brands? Sure. Okay, bitch and sauce. Oh. sauce. Oh, oh my gosh! I, a three-star Michelin chef told me he eats bitchin' sauce all day, and I'd never even tried it. So I, I went to start trying. It's my life now. I will just take <laughs> those gluten-free crackers from Milton's, and I'll dip them in a bitchin' sauce, and I'll eat those all day long. If I'm cooking it, usually what I do as I'm, I'm I'm kind of like a nerd, but I, I love sauteed veggies. I'll just saute like something really quick, like squash or something like that, or or even mushrooms, and just saute them with olive oil, butter, zatar. You That's
2: know, your snack. That's my thing. It's not. That it's, really, it's no, quick. I know. I know. Yeah. Uh best. Part Part about being
1: a dad. Best part about being a dad is seeing joy come alive. I mean, unfettered joy. There is no baggage on that. There is. You see, Jasper's our son. You see him running at the ocean every single morning. We live by the beach. We pay way too much money. We can't afford it, but it's fine. (laughs) Um, You know. But we we take him out to the beach almost every day, and he runs into that water. There, his life is complete. You've never seen such joy in a human being. You know, and just being able to. You know, you learn how to spend your life taking care of yourself, and then you, you know, get to t- translate into taking care of somebody else. It's, I mean, it's an honor. It's, it's amazing. Wow,
2: I love that. Uh, favorite Afghan food?
1: Well, Afghan food. My daughter is a Afghan. My ex was Afghan. I'm not, so we call her Afghan. <laughs> it's got to be. Osh is a soup that uses a lot of cilantro and ground beef and it's it, it, udon noodles. It is oh and yogurt. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and aso or thai, or the ghee is this rice dish that, you know, they make and what what you do is you leave the rice in the bottom of the pan and it just kind of crisps up and browns and gets all the butter and the salt and everything else. You turn the rice over. You get out the rice for the dish and you turn the rice over and it's just like It's like the best movie popcorn you've ever had. It's (laughs) crunchy and brown, salty and buttery. Oh, it's the best.
2: That sounds incredible. Uh, I have not tried that, but putting it on the list. Um, Put it on the list. Favorite San Diego activity?
1: Uh, Fighting off mediocrity. No. (laughs) <laughs> I love San Diego so much, but sometimes people come here and they're like, you know what? Life's over. Let's just lean into the beach. I'm like, no! Let's, <laughs> still, let's still create culture. I'm surfing for sure. I grew up surfing. Mm. You know, I, I was like 13 years old, like on that water. And when you get in that water and, you know, you're just floating and nothing's blooping or bleeping. The to-do list is nowhere nearby and you're just staring at this undulating water and there's dolphins right over there to your left. You've got sun. You've got those negative eyes ions, and then you're just floating on this moving piece of nature. I, 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 there's a reason why we're all such weirdos. About it. it is, <laughs> it definitely is a religious experience and it's possibly why I stayed in, in San Diego. Wow. I mean, it's
2: a good reason I to stay.
1: <laughs> culture, yes. My wife and my my children, for sure. Of course. You know, but also surfing.
2: Yeah. Also surfing. Yeah, yeah, you're making me miss San Diego a lot in this interview. But last question for you, and we ask everybody this at the end of all of our Food Network Obsessed interviews, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want you to take us through you know, the progression, breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. You can throw in some, you know, sauteed vegetable snacks if you need to. (laughs) There's no rules. You can travel, time travel, spend as much money as you want. Anybody could cook these meals. It's your day. We want to hear your perfect food day.
1: Okay, so my perfect food day would have to start with some kind of breakfast tapas because I, I can't. You can't just choose one. I you know oh, you want
2: you got to have like a couple of things for the table, right? Ab-
1: absolutely. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I don't have good enough teeth to call it brunch. You know, but I just I do appreciate the concept of having a lot of things to eat. So I think I like some kind of a kimchi hash. Some kind of hash, potatoes, eggs cheese, meats, and then like a the kimchi or something like that to, to tweak it. Fruity pebbles and ice cold milk. Um, <laughs> just I'm a kid who grew up on sugar cereal. Yeah. And apparently in, the, yeah, <laughs> apparently in the 70s and the apparently in the 70s and eighties and nobody had heard about like what am I do to our attention <laughs> and our ability to, to to hold it. But I mean I love that. You know why I love fruity pebbles? Because I believe it is actually a Macrut Lime leaf makrut lime leaf is also one of my favorite foods because i love thai food uh-huh, so yeah. i think the same flavor of makrut lime leaf is in foodie pebbles i'm almost certain of it richard blaze and i totally agree um so anyways that in ice cold milk like a sip of a smoothie i make this weird smoothie every single morning it's got every antioxidant and every anti-inflammatory food that you could ever make in the world no one likes it except my wife and i but it's delicious shortbread benedict then lunch it'd be tacos and sushi okay uh-huh, Both in
2: San Diego, it, I'm guessing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be know, a birria taco, you know, like mm-hmm. one of those, I mean, you just, you just melt all the cheese on it. I don't, nobody can see me right now, but I'm just, I'm doing the melted cheese face, <laughs> you know, and then you get that birria, that slow cooked meat on there and just onion, cilantro and everything else. And that's, and then sushi, because it's that clean. I feel like if you eat that, you actually get, you like, you levitate a little bit, you know, it's the cleanest <laughs> food you possibly can. So it's not going to, that will kind of like get me back on the rest of my so day. So it like
2: balances you out. From the from the quesadillas and the tacos, <laughs> yes,
1: yes. And then you know, at some point in there, there definitely would be a. I'm such a white wine guy. <laughs> I would have so much Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, I, I mean, so.
2: definitely, it's your perfect I food would, day. You have you have to
1: absolutely. I mean, not too much. Drink responsibly, but I mean, I would definitely have some Sauvignon Blanc. It's crisp. It's refreshing. I'm, you know, I, I I've leaned into that aspect of myself. And then for dinner, drunken noodles with duck and penang curry. The Thai food is probably my weakness. I love it. I cook put on curry. I make it from scratch in a mortar, mortar and pestle. It's my one dish. Everybody makes fun of it. Me at Fort Food Network, they're like, oh, what's Troy gonna make? on curry. You know? <laughs> so but that drunken noodles with duck and put on curry, and just a Thai wow. dinner would be great. And then I'm, like, yeah, I'm gonna finish the day in a mountain of cheese.
2: You know, <laughs> that's my kind and, of dessert, too. <laughs> right?
1: right. I mean, I, was, I remember when somebody first told me that you can have cheese for dessert. And I was like, this is a ripoff. I'm 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 in a born and raised American and I deserve 70,000 calories and more sugar than any human being should ingest. I just want a plate of sugar. And I was like, all right, I'll eat this cheese. And it transformed my life. I mean, I want all the blues and the stinky triple creams and everything else. It's just, you know, like a fork and some hot honey and a little bit of, thick, you know, cured meats. And then send me off. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that sounds—it sounds absolutely perfect, and I am so excited to see everything that we just talked about unfold a little bit more. But thank you so much for taking the time and sharing a little bit of it with us here on Food Network Obsessed.
1: All I want to say is thank you so much for having me on. You're—you're you're a joy. No one could see you during this podcast, but you have a very like nice face. Oh, like you just—you're <laughs> you. like. You're like, I just like you. You just yeah. look at it, and you're like, I feel I can I can talk to this person. Uh, so, no, that's come back to San Diego. I'm you're going
2: done. to, I'm going to. I was gonna say that is the highest compliment that I, I could receive. So thank you very much. I will definitely make it back to San Diego and I will let you know when that happens.
1: All right, sounds good. Thank you.
2: You can follow Troy on Instagram at hey Troy Johnson, and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday.